Good, 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 good. What's up, everybody? Welcome, welcome, welcome to an extra special, super special. And when I say that, I really mean it. We've done 116 live streams in the data on Kubernetes community. And this is our first time that we're going live and direct, getting local, getting really special with our friends that are out there in London, the UK. I'm in Madrid. I'm in Spain right now. We'll definitely be in London next month for our first in-person date on Kubernetes meetup, which will be on March 24th. You can expect more information to be coming out about that very, very soon. But mark your calendars on March 24th. We will be in central London rocking out with our friends at OnDat, with other DOK community members. We're super, super stoked about this. Thanks, everyone, for, for being with us today. Big shout out to OnDat for all their support. Big shout out to HashiCorp. Big shout out to Timescale and Kasten that will all be joining us later. Got an extra special schedule for you today. Before we get started, just want to drop a link here in the chat. For those of you that aren't aware yet, we will be having another co-located event in KubeCon in May, on May 16th, and our CFP is open. So if you want to give a talk about your experience running stateful workloads on Kubernetes, please take a look at the link that I dropped here in the chat. Um, you'll find all the information about that for the CFP, which is open until March. So definitely get your talks in for that. We're hoping to have two tracks uh, this time around to get more and more content about writing stateful workloads on Kubernetes. Like I said, extra specially stoked. You've seen all the promo. We've done lots of extravagant things we haven't done before. We did a wrap video before that normally we do afterwards just to get extra energy into this one. We even took a little clip from the movie Snatch, which I love and adore so very much to hype up the fact that we're, we're going local in London. You can expect to see more local meetups from us in the very, very near future. So once again, mark your calendars for March 24th. On top of that, I just want to highlight the fact that today, for today's session, we invite you to get involved in the conversation. Don't be a stranger. We're here to answer questions, to get these things out in the open. Um, I'm going to leave the, uh, the name for the Slack channel that we have in our Slack that's just dedicated to DOK London, all right? So feel free to, uh, to get your questions out there. Also, if you haven't, for whatever reason, I'm going to leave the, the link to um, our meetup page uh, for London. I'm also going to leave that here so you can sign up for that so you can find out about all the events that are going to be going on um, locally speaking in the UK. All right. So I'm going to leave that link here right now. That being said, we've got an action-packed agenda, and I don't want to waste any time. Um, so I want to introduce our, our speakers. We're going to have a hands-on lab talking about Kubernetes secrets, about encryption, about encrypting databases, persistent volume claims, all that good data on Kubernetes stuff. And that will be led by none other than my main man, Nick. And also he's joined by Dominique from HashiCorp. Very experienced folks, very generous community-based folks that'll be leading this. So we'll be spending about the first hour and 20 minutes, hour and a half doing a hands-on workshop. Remember, the first 10 people that finish this workshop successfully, all right, that finish this workshop, will get some awesome swag from OnDat and HashiCorp. I've also heard... There are some backpacks, and not just any kind of backpacks, some North Face backpacks that will also be available um, for people that are participating, getting involved. We'll have some more information about uh, that from Nick in a bit. That being said, I would like to bring on Nick and Dominique, but also remember, folks, after the workshop, we're going to have a DevRel panel. We're bringing on Lorraine as well as Allison um, to talk about the role of community in all this. We're talking about very innovative technologies. We're talking about bringing data, stateful workloads on Kubernetes. No easy challenge, and it's a technological challenge that has to be met with the human factor that we find in community, all right? So definitely stick around for the panel that will be after uh, the hands-on workshop. That being said, I want to take it away um, and bring on our, our leaders for the workshop. But remember, folks, get your questions in the chat. This is for you, all right? You don't need any crazy technical requirements. You need an internet browser to be able to get involved in the workshop. 
Um, they were, they are very patient. These are folks that are used to doing this, that are very much on the educational side of onboarding folks with these different technologies. That being said, Nick and Dominique, could you uh, jump on screen so I can get out of here? Hi. Hey! Hello! <laughs> hey, 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 what's up? Yo, yo, good. yo, yo. Yeah, I'm all good. All good. Thank you for the kind introduction. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm stoked. I think that I think that introduction went reasonably well. Um, but you know, no, no pressure, no pressure. I don't want to build up too much pressure for the for the workshop. But perhaps we can get a little quick introduction. Um, Dominique, since this is your first time in our community, can you just introduce yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about you know your background, how you got involved in doing what you're doing. Well, I mean, we only have a brief couple of minutes, but um, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm Dominique Top. I am, uh, at the moment, I'm a solutions engineer at HashiCorp. I've been involved in the DevOps community for, I mean, probably since the last six odd years. Um, I am the Docker community leader for London chapter. Um, I'm on the organizational panel for DevOps Days London and DevSecOps Days London. I'm just involved with a lot of other communities in general. I just like being around people. Um, so yeah, my, my experience is uh, mostly mostly there. I've had um, a uh, stint as a recruiter, believe it or not, and Ooh. I have been a dev, um, dev um, yeah dev developer relations and community manager. My previous company was at Babylon Health, was a little for a short while, and now I'm yeah solutions engineer at HashiCorp. So it's uh, taken a long way around, but I'm still very much involved with uh, with with all the cool communities in. Um, yeah, pretty much everywhere, but mostly in London. <laughs> All right, very, very good. And Nick, in your case, this isn't the first time we've had you on, so maybe you can tell us a fun fact about yourself that we don't know yet. Oh, I mean, you already know everything. I, I, I don't hide any secrets. So yeah, I, my name is Nick. I'm a uh, developer advocate uh, with Ondat, and I've been with Ubart on several occasions. Uh, we did like Twitter Live. We did uh, some session around stateful apps and all the you know, devops -y things. Um, so today is no exception. Very, I'm very hands-on, so we're going to do like a hands-on workshop. Uh, very happy about it. I hope people like it because I, I spent at least 30 hours on that one. So if you hate it, tell it. I mean, but I will hate you for that. No, I'm just joking. Any feedback is always appreciated. Um, fun fact about me. I mean, no, you already know, like I'm a big fan of animes, Marvel, uh, hardcore metal, um, what else? Uh, video games? Oh, I've just tried the new, um, it's The Lost Ark. It's, it's been released okay. a couple of days ago. It's an MMO, free to play, but I don't know what happened. Everyone is just like overloading the servers, so I could not connect. So that's weird. Like people need something just to, I don't know, to have fun. They, they were, all went on this kind of server, so I cannot play anymore, but that's fine. That's okay. Patience is a virtue. That being oh, said, yeah. I'm preparing a semi, um, half marathon in Cambridge in three weeks. Ooh, look at you. Yeah, that's going to be good fun. I mean, good maybe you. not too fun for me, but for yeah, others. That's good. That's good. It's going to be active. It's going to be active. That being said, let's keep things active. Remember, folks, get your questions in the chat. All right. Get your questions in the chat. We also got the Slack channel open, DOK London. You can jump in there. If you're not familiar with our Slack, please jump in. We're happy to get you uh, onboarded there as well. But remember, take advantage of the session we have two wonderful folks that are used to doing these kinds of things so please 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 get your questions out in the open you do not need to wait until the end do not feel like you need to do that all right get these things out there in the open it's supposed to be interactive it's not supposed to be a monologue that being said i'm going to go to the backstage i'm going to let you two take it away and i will be joining later for the devrel panel um so we'll be seeing you soon all right thank you
Thank you for uh, yeah, a lovely introduction. Um, it was very funny because Nick said like, ah, I don't have much secrets, but I do have a lot of secrets and I'm just exactly what I'm going to be talking about <laughs> right now because Vault does things with secrets. Um, so yeah, as I said, um, my name is Dominique and I am a solutions engineer at HashiCorp. For those of you who do not know us, HashiCorp is a software company that focuses on cloud infrastructure automation. We provide a software stack that enables organizations to provision, secure, connect, and run any app on any infrastructure, be it on-prem or in the cloud. Um, you might know us from products like Terraform, Console, Nomad, Vagrant, and Packer. Um, we've got loads of other things, uh, Boundary and Waypoints. I can name all of them, but today I'm just going to give you a brief overview about what Vault is because that's what we'll be using um, in the hands-on lab later. So this is a very, very, very brief presentation because um, uh, it's it's Vault is so large. It's a, it's a very it's it's you know I can talk about features forever, <laughs> but um, you know we're, we're going to be um, using some of Vault today, and I am going to yeah just give you a bit of an overview. So what is Vault? Uh, Vault is an API-driven um, cloud-agnostic secrets management platform, which allow you to, allows you to securely access, store, and manage secrets in hybrid multi-cloud and multi-data center environments. That's the marketing tagline. Basically, what that means is Vault is a security appliance, which is designed to improve on security postures within any organization. The three main use cases for Vault um, are secrets management um, to centrally store, um, access and distribute dynamic secrets, keeping your application data secure with centralized key management and simple APIs for data encryption, and advanced data protection, which enables you to integrate with stuff like KMIP and HSMs and stuff like that. So. A couple of features that I want to run through um, all should be moderately um, in, in, in line with what we'll be doing later on. Vault is designed to be pluggable and um, yeah, comes with various components com um, called secrets engines and authentication methods. These are pretty much the main two things that you, uh, you use when you use Vault. This allows you to integrate with internal and external systems. The purpose of these components is to manage and protect your secrets in dynamic infrastructure like database credentials, passwords, or API keys, and you can easily revoke them in case there's a breach. Authentication in Vault is the process by which user or machine-supplied information is verified against an internal or external system. Before a client can actually interact with Vault, it has to authenticate against an auth method. Um, and when it's actually authenticated, then Vault will generate you a token. Auth methods are the components involved that perform authentication and are responsible for assigning identity and a set of policies to a user, kind of how you might, you know, present an um, like a valid ID at a hotel reception before you get the hotel room key. <laughs> so basically, users and applications will have to provide some sort of credential or token to authenticate. Um, you can have multiple authentication methods. Um, you can have multiple auth methods at the same time. You can have multiple instances of the same one as well. Basically, you can use any of that to uh, make sure that it works for your use cases. Okay, secrets engines um, are uh, the other part that is um, the, the, the pluggable part of Vault. Secrets engines are the components which uh, store, generate, or encrypt data. Secrets engines are really flexible, so it's easiest to think about them in terms of their function. Secrets engines are provided some set of data, they take some action on that data, and then they return a result. Some secrets engines simply store and read data, like the key value uh, secrets engine. There are also databases that connect to other services like cloud providers and databases to generate dynamic um, credentials with a time to live on the fly. 
LNR are the secret engines like the Transit and Transform secret engines that provide you with encryption as a service, TOTP generation, certificates, and much more. Secret engines are enabled at a path in Vault. So when a request comes to Vault, that router automatically routes anything uh, with the same prefix to the secret engine. This way, each secret engine um, defines its own paths and properties. To the user, um, secret engines might come across like a file system or a virtual file system supporting operations like uh, read, write, and delete. So in today's lab, we will be using the transit secret engine, um, which is what integrates with Trousseau, which we'll be hearing about more from Nick later on. So what does the transit secret engine actually do? So it does a bunch of different things. Um, it basically handles uh, cryptographic functions uh, on data in transit, says <laughs> kind of like what's in the name, right? Um, it could also kind of be viewed as cryptography as a service or encryption as a service. So the transit secrets engine can also sign and verify data, generate, uh, it can generate hashes and HMACs of data and can act as a source of random bytes. So the primary use case for transit is to encrypt data from applications while still storing that encrypted data in some primary data store. This relieves the burden of um, you know, the proper encryption and decryption from application developers and pushes that burden onto the operators of Vault, which basically means that you do not have to be a cryptography expert to still leverage the encryption and decryption by modern security standards. Um, yeah, so before I did anything uh, with Vault, I'd, I'm not a cryptography expert, so using Vault makes, <laughs> makes it a little bit easier to still um, adhere to the latest standards. Okay. Uh, Last slide, I think, is the last slide. Yeah, so lastly, it's good to know that Vault comes in a couple of different flavors. All of our software is available open source, which you can install pretty much on any OS. It ships as a single binary. Um, Vault open source is particularly great for individual practitioners to get started, but on, um, we have um, commercial offerings, enterprise offerings for, uh, you know, um, to enable more collaboration and scale. So. Since a year ago, we also offer Vault as a SaaS solution, but let me just not go too much into the details. But if you have any questions about any of this, please feel free to drop me an email on dominique at hashicorp.com or at devopsdomi for uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter or something like that. So yeah, if you have any questions, I'll be on the Slack. I will be on the comments portion, I believe. I'll also be in the panel and um, helping out with the workshop. So um, with that, I would love to hand it over to Nick. Thank you, Dummy. That was great. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to remove this from uh, live and you too. I have to remove you. I I, I don't want to do that, but I, I okay? have to. <laughs> I'll be yeah, backstage. Okay? It's okay. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dummy. So uh, what I'm going to be covering, I'm going to be covering what we are going to do today. But before that, I just want to repeat what uh, Bart said before regarding the swag. So <laughs> the first 10 delegates uh, to finish the lab will get on that hoodie, which is very nice, and some HashiCorp swag. Uh, so what we need for that, just take a screenshot of the um, you know, lab finish. When you have, you will see when you finish the lab, uh, you will have some uh, feedback requests and with a little, you know, smiley. If you were, if you was, I mean, if you you are happy or not, hopefully you're gonna be happy with that. <laughs> Just take a screenshot, post it on um, the Slack channel, and then that's fine. And then out of these ten delegates who finish the first, um, will you will enter a draw for winning a on that North Face bag. 
really good quality bag. And the only condition for that, um, so just post something on, you know, just uh, flag the lab on uh, Twitter with DOK community um, in copy or on that uh, IO in copy or HashiCorp in copy. Um, also, by now, I hope everyone on the live stream has already joined the uh, Slack channel where people will, I mean, and colleagues of mine will help you with the lab should you have any issue. Uh, what else? And then, yeah, for the next DOK uh, London, that will happen on, but I will repeat it at the end, on the 24th of March, that will be hopefully cross finger in person in London with pizza and beer, hopefully, and maybe some songs. I know Bart may be there, so he can rap. Richa from on that can also sing and maybe dummy she will come and sing as well <laughs> i'm not sure we'll see all right so uh with that being said let me share uh, let me share this screen and let's get started with my part so before going to the lab i'm just going to be talking quickly uh, about what we are going to do today um the topic for the day is of course secrets uh, but also Kubernetes API error and how it handles encryption. So first of all, um, when you deploy and you develop application in Kubernetes, there are different ways to store application data. When, when I, I'm talking about application data, um, it's not only like a database or something like that. Any information that is useful for the application to run. So any context information, environment variables, um, you know, all these kind of things. So there's different ways to store this in Kubernetes. First, we have, uh, let's start with the lower, um, right? So we have volumes. So typically volumes under, you know, the form of PVC or, you know, a persistent volume claim, what they do is they provide you with a way to mount uh, disk space into your container and you can store things there. So that's one way. To, um, to store data in Kubernetes. Another one is config maps. So config maps is basically key value pairs you put into a Kubernetes object. And then when you deploy your pod, the pod can consume these resources and then get you can just inject the config map um, as a file, as an environment variable, all these kind of things. But it's a first class citizen within Kubernetes. You also have what we call the downward API. So the downward API is this ability of Kubernetes. When you have a pod manifest, you can um, refer to elements of Kubernetes for the application. So you have specific fields that you can inject into the container that Kubernetes knows about. So for example, if for whatever reason you need uh, the pod IP and inject it somewhere in the pod to begin with, then this is something you can do by referencing this particular you know, status pod IP or something within the um, Kubernetes manifest directly. So it's a way to infer information from Kubernetes directly into the pod by using Kubernetes knowledge right, or Kubernetes downward API, using Kubernetes API itself. That's another way to do it. Uh, it doesn't work with all the fields, so you have to go to the, into the documentation and check what you can do with this. And last but not least, secrets, which on paper really looks like uh, config maps, except that it, it's, it's a different object. So typically it's used for 
a different purpose, which is storing more sensitive uh, credential. And the main difference here, when you look at the object itself, well, there's on the left, you have a config map, so you can see everything in clear text. And on the right, you can check, you know, you can see secret and you can say, okay, it's encrypted, but actually, no, it's not encrypted. This part here that I've uh, highlighted is considered clear text. Why? Because it's just base 64 encoded, right? That's basically it. So if you were to take this part, you know, what is inside the, the, the red rectangle and just use base 64 decode, all that uh, line that what you will see is exactly the same content as what you see inside the config map. Um, so you're like, okay, wait a sec. So it's it's a secret, and it's not it's not really a secret because anyone with you know who can decode base base sixty four can have access to that particular secret. And but why should you care to begin with? So I was as I was saying, typically secrets are supposed to be used to store more sensitive information that you don't want to share with with anyone. Typically, it can be your AWS keys, your API keys, uh, things that you don't want anyone else to see or not people who don't have the right permission to do that. So here's the challenge with Kubernetes. Knowing this, what happens to secrets inside Kubernetes if you don't encrypt them? So any user with read permission for secrets right, on a particular namespace will be able to read all secrets given a particular namespace. Although it's still you know, namespaced, anyone with um, you know, permissions to read secrets will be able to read any secrets within that namespace. Then also, um, Kubernetes doesn't encrypt anything in etcd. And as you know, hopefully you know that, Kubernetes store you know, all the objects, all the information about the objects within etcd, which is the key value store uh, used by Kubernetes by default. So anyone with read permission for etcd, which typically means that you are root uh, on the control plane nodes, can read all secrets in the cluster. So there's no granularity. If you have access to etcd in read mode, then you can see all secrets that are present within the cluster, which is also not really good. Um, another one is that anyone who connects to a pod, right? so you deploy a pod, the pod itself always mounts a service account um, you know, with information, like the default service account that is created into the namespace. So you spin up a pod, by default, always service account attached to it. So by default, this service account cannot do anything. But if at some point someone um, you know, enable read permission for secrets uh, for that service account, um, there is consequences outside of Kubernetes because now, as this secret is mounted within the pod, it means that anyone who has read access in the pod, right, not even in Kubernetes, who can, I don't know, maybe SSH into the pod or you know, just, just get inside the pod, if you go into the right directory, you will see the secrets as unencrypted, right? So uh, those are pretty you know, difficult challenges and any enterprise who, develop, uh, who deploy Kubernetes in production will face them because what I've mentioned is mandatory 
for a security, you know, a, a CISO or someone with this kind of qualification, this is mandatory to mitigate. Right? Um, so how to do it? So first of all, apply the least privileged principle, only allow users in Kubernetes to get access to what they need. I know it can be complicated because you can go very granular by default, everything is open. Uh, but I would take the opposite approach. Start with no one can do, I mean, nothing. And then if people need to do something, then gradually give them more permission, not the opposite. At least for production cluster, for tests, maybe different. Uh, but still, remember, even in a test cluster, protect your secrets. Otherwise, you know, anyone we fall into the uh, you know the, the the trap I've mentioned before. If you anyone can access your um, AWS credential, then don't be surprised in the day if the day after you find like a lot of mining, you know, people mining bitcoins. Right, so it's not ideal. Uh, a second one, which we're going to be uh, focusing today, is encrypt secrets at rest in etcd. It doesn't solve everything I've mentioned before. It's basically solve the one where if you have access to etcd, uh, then the, the secret will be encrypted there. Um, if you mount the secret in the pod, still visible, it doesn't solve uh, the secrets when it's directly accessible from you know within the cluster. It solves for uh, you know the, the the problem where people can get access to etcd, whether it's a backup or something, because typically you will do backup or snapshot of etcd, uh, which means it's going to be somewhere on a disk with that data. So and you don't want that data to be um, visible by anyone who can have access to etcd backup. That's pretty bad. Um, another one, yeah, it's secure etcd members communication using TLS, but this one is, is, is rather, I mean, that make, it's just logic, right? Anything you do inside Kubernetes always enable TLS. And by the way, in the lab, it's not enabled. So I just, I'm just contradicting myself because it's not, it's not enabled for the lab. But yeah, it's just a lab, right? And uh, in terms of who can get access to, to etcd, typically you just want to um, enable the Kubernetes API nodes to get access to etcd, no one else. So advice is just use basic you know, ACL, firewall rules, anything you can think of in terms of stateful firewall rules um, is all, also good. OK, so now let's focus on the encryption part and how we will do it with Trousseau. So first, you know, what is Trousseau? So Trousseau is uh, a standardization KMS plugin that allows you to integrate with external KMS provider and offload the management um, of secrets encryption decryption to an external KMS provider. And today we're gonna see the integration with Vault, which is the only one we have for the moment with Trousseau. Uh, but as you know, the project matures, we will have other you know, integration with other KMS provider. Should it be a uh, you know, cloud KMS provider or from, from other, other vendor? So how does that work? So the API server has an option um, to encrypt etcd. But what Kubernetes defines is pretty high level. Basically, it tells you, OK, I'm going to send you uh, a request to encrypt the traffic and to decrypt the traffic. And that's it. This is what Kubernetes assumes. It's just, I'm going to do, I'm going to send you a request. I'm expecting something back. If it's encryption request, I'm expecting like uh, encrypted payload. If it's decrypts my secrets, then it will be, you know, 
the assumption is that it should return the decrypted, um, the decrypted secret. It's not only available for secrets, meaning that you can, if you want, you can um, encrypt any resource in Kubernetes that is stored into etcd. But again, here we're talking about encrypting what is stored in etcd. Right? I want to make insist on that. It's not encrypting anything else. We sent the API, I mean the the requests to the KMS plugin in our in our case Truso. So the user basically create the secret.yaml, the secret you want to uh, create in Kubernetes. You send it to the Kube API server. The Kube API server will then see, oh, do I have encryption enabled? Yes, no. If yes, what is, where is the socket I should write to, like GRPC communication? So it's going to send the request there. And hopefully on the other side, you have the KMS plugin, so Truso, the GRPC server, which is listening for those requests. And it's going to say, oh, this is an encryption request from the Kube API server. Um, OK, this is I'm using with the configuration file from Trousseau. Um, the system is going to see, OK, this is votes I'm using on the, in the back end for, for that particular you know, uh, set of secrets I need to encrypt for that you know, particular cluster. Then I'm going to send it to vote. And this is where we translate the high level um, you know, encryption request into a low level um, you know, KMS provider specific request in, th in that case, vault. So what's going to happen, Trousseau is going to ask uh, the transit secrets engine, please encrypt. So remember, Domi said it's encryption and decryption on request, meaning that vault won't store the data, right? Vault, vault store the keys, the keys used to encrypt and decrypt the secrets, right? So no data stored there. The only thing vault will send back the, the encrypted key. Trousseau then will tell the API server, here's what you asked for. And the Kube API server will then write the encrypted data into, into the um, etcd uh, database, right? And if you need to decrypt, it's the opposite that will happen, right? So Kube API server, when someone is trying to you know, just uh, access the, um, if you need to access the um, Kube API server needs to access the data, it will send decrypt request to Trousseau, Trousseau to Vault, and then you know, back to, uh, back to the, the, the Kube API server. And then the data will be, uh, will be decrypted there. So meaning that, again, it's the encryption is in Vault. So if you do kubectl, if you have the permission to read secrets, with kubectl get secret dash all YAML, it will still be um, unencrypted. OK, I'm just checking if there is uh, questions there. Don't hesitate to uh, ask questions as we go. OK, there's a lot of things happening around, discussion around pizza swag. Yeah, it's probably the most important part. I understand. I get it. But yeah, as we go, if you have any question, um, yeah, feel free to ask anytime. So uh, what time is it? 30? Oh, it went too, too far. Anyway, so before going into the lab, I will do it with you. Right, so uh, the link for the lab, I will give it just in one sec. Hopefully, is it in the chat? I'm not sure if the link to the lab is in the chat. Uh, no, there's a link to the meetup in the chat. If you go there, it will be there as well. Anyway, so first task in the lab, there are three challenges. The first one is going to be like get familiar with vaults, encrypt, decrypt messages uh, with the transit secrets secrets engine, so not real Kubernetes so far. I mean, Vault is deployed as a Kubernetes 
stateful sets in the lab, um, so still related to Kubernetes. Then the second challenge will be to deploy the Kubernetes KMS plugin, so Trousseau, and connect it to Vault, check that everything is fine. Um, and then also make sure that the encryption is enabled on the API server and enable this. Then encrypt secrets in etcd. And the last part, which is probably the most interesting, uh, again, about stateful application. This is the OK. We work uh, on data. This is our main focus. And we'll be deploying a MongoDB cluster, three node, with the community operator. And we'll encrypt persistent volumes themselves. So it's another you know, level. We were talking about encrypted secrets. Here, we're going to be encrypted, encrypting persistent volumes. And by using um, a class, I mean a storage class, which will be, which happens to be on that in that case, and the way uh, this is going to be done, the volume is going to be are going to be encrypted using private keys. So one set of keys per volume. So we're going to be working with this and make sure that the private key used to encrypt the persistent volume. Uh, this is a, they are store a secret, and we'll make sure that this secret is really secret and is basically encrypted. Okay, so um, the lab is there. I'm gonna copy paste this into a YouTube channel. There you go. That's fine. So uh, we have normally about twenty labs ready. Um, even if there are more people, is the only difference. Is, so click start track already, right? It should be fast because they are hot start labs. If there are more than 20 lab uh, consumed, then it's going to take maybe a bit more time, like four minutes. But here it should take one minute maximum, one, one minute to get the lab ready. So again, uh, the link is now in um, YouTube channel. If you don't have the link, you can also go on the Meetup page. Uh, you will see in the description here, um, so there are a couple of information, the uh, DOK community Slack channel, and also uh, the link to, to, instruct, to the Instruct Lab is there. OK. So it's still waiting for the challenge to start. Meanwhile, I'm just checking if there is no uh, question. No, no question so far. So still setting up the challenge. There will be like a couple of points where, you know, like a transition where it may take a bit of time to um, um, just to, to take, like when we're going to be creating uh, the database for the stateful set, the stateful one, two, three, the stateful set to be spin up. Okay, start. But I'm, I'm going to go you know, with you so you can follow along. I will read everything. I will do everything at the same time as you. So be just aware. I can see like what's happening on YouTube now. There's a bit of uh, you know, shift. There's a bit of delay between when I'm, you know, what I'm saying and the moment you hear it. Uh, so again, if you have any question about the lab, there are people on Slack there to help you. So you can ask a question there. Or, I mean, you, if you want to do it fast, you can do, do fast, remember, because the first 10 people will get the swag. <laughs> so you can go fast and not wait for me. Uh, if you're not super familiar with you know, Kubernetes or not comfortable with all this concept, 
you can just follow along. All the instruction should be sufficient for you to do the entire lab. Entire lab. Um, explanation should be comprehensive. There shouldn't be any problem with it. So um, yeah, I'm gonna start. So hopefully you, you had time to click on start the lab, but just, I'm gonna go slowly at the beginning so you can also catch up uh, if, it's, if it's taking a little bit more time. So let's read this way. By completing this challenge, you will familiarize yourself with VOD operations in Kubernetes. So VOD is an identity-based secrets and encryption management system. And a secret is anything that you want to tightly control access to, API encryption keys, password, or certificate. And what provides encryption services that are gated by authentication and authorization methods. Um, so secret agents, again, they are components which store, generate, and, or encrypt data. Uh, they are flexible. Um, it's easier to think about them in terms of function. And secret engines are provided some uh, are provided some set of data, they take some action on that data and then return a result. Basically, I'm paraphrasing what uh, Dominic already said. Uh, so there's a lot of secrets engine available um, in Vault. By default, nothing is enabled, uh, just uh, the cubby hole. Uh, so the first thing we're going to have to do is enable that particular transit secrets engine. Um, and just check that it is providing encryption and decryption uh, encryption and decryption services. Um, so, but I didn't mention, but why do, do we need Trousseau in the first place? Because as I said, Kubernetes can, um, can rely on external system or have, has to rely on external system to encrypt the data. But the problem is that there's no standard to do it. So if, for example, if you look at VOD today, it's not using the, the, the Kubernetes pattern, the standard pattern to do it, which is what I mentioned. It's through the API server, you encrypt your secrets into etcd. Um, a lot of different vendors that provide a different pattern. So uh, VOD, HashiCorp VOD, has a different pattern by default where um, uh, VOD will be injecting a sidecar agent that renders VOD secret to shell memory volume, or you can use the Vault CSI driver to mount secrets into the pod's volume. There's no involvement in terms of Kubernetes or, or the, the API server, right? But this is where Trousseau comes into play. Imagine that you may be using more than one KMS. You may be using a cloud KMS for your GKE cluster. You may be using Vault for your, you know, another cluster on-prem or your Rancher cluster. And uh, you end up with different solution, with different mechanisms. There's no standardization. So what Trousseau will allow you to do is to connect any backend KMS provider that we will support over time, but without changing the integration layer, the KMS plugin will stay Trousseau. What, what you change is just the, the backend KMS provider. There's no need to re-implement uh, the logic and the code every time, right? Because if you rely on vendor, on KMS, you know, solution, um, they would have to do the, the you know, what Trousseau does uh, in a standard fashion, they would have to implement it in their specific way every time for every vendor. So it's not something that is, uh, that provide value for vendors or for Kubernetes. And I guess this is why this was kind of a gray area. And Trousseau is basically the only solution that you can find, I mean, standardized solution that you can find today. You can develop your own if you want, uh, but here the idea is to create these open source projects so people can contribute and support as many provider as we want, right? 
So here, as I said, we take a different approach by using the Kubernetes standard pattern to encrypt resources in etcd. So can, can encrypt secrets, but other resources as well if you want to, but more importantly, secret, because this is what you want to keep secret. Makes sense. So the goal is to store encrypted secrets in etcd while keeping um, the encryption key management outside the cluster. And Vault is basically acting as a bump in the wire, providing Kubernetes secrets encryption and decryption services on demand when the Kubernetes API server needs it. And this is you know, what I said, Trusso is what makes it possible. It's a KMS plugin that translates high-level requests from the Kubernetes API server into more specific Vault operations. It leverages the Vault Transit Secrets engine to encrypt and decrypt secrets on demand on behalf on the API server, which is connected to Trusso through a gRPC channel. So again, here, this is what I've mentioned with the workflow, create a secret, Kube API server calls Trusso. Trusso sends the encryption request to the KMS provider. KMS provider returns encrypted data to Trusso. Then Trusso sends the encrypted data back to the Kube API server and Kube API server stored the encrypted resource in etcd. All right, so hopefully by reading through that, it gives you some time to get the lab ready. Um, hopefully everyone found the Instruct Lab. Okay. It should be fine. Just reading through the comment quickly. Yeah, it doesn't seem too many problems. Okay, so let's start with the real stuff. First task. So you will, you will see there's a lot of verification commands and there are some configuration as well. So hopefully you shouldn't be able to mess it up at least in the first challenge. Later, I'm gonna point you, I mean, I'm gonna highlight specific um, tasks where you will have to be careful about things like indent in YAML because YAML is not, going to forgive you, right? <laughs> That's the problem. Okay, so in the context of this lab, Vault is deployed in the same Kubernetes cluster as the secret it manages. This is a criti <laughs> critical flow. There is a critical flow with this architecture, obviously. Vault and the cluster share the same fate. So a couple of scenarios would lead to the whole cluster going down or being compromised. If the, you know, some part of you know, the cluster, in case of the cluster failure, um, the vault stateful set can be impacted, so can be down actually. But the problem is that if the vault pod is down, you cannot decrypt secrets, right? So you see it's like a chicken and egg issue. So it's a bad idea. And uh, also, it's in case of you know, if, if if the in case the cluster is compromised, the vault backend storage, which is hosted here in in the same cluster, uh, it would be directly accessible by the attacker, including the keys and everything. Um, so not ideal for production, but it's the simplest way to get started. It's a lab. Don't do this at home. Don't do this in production. Uh, the best way to do it, you know, you can have Vault integrated into or deployed in another cluster or as virtual machine in the cloud, or you can use the uh, SaaS services or PaaS, SaaS, you know, HashiCorp on the HashiCorp cloud platform, right? You can also use uh, Vault there as a service. So today, um, here, we also, I mean, the Vault is deployed in Kubernetes as a stateful set, and also you have the sidecar injector agent. We won't be using, as I said, the sidecar injector agent because we are going to leverage the Kubernetes native 
encryption capabilities. Um, instead, we will directly use Vault Transit Secrets Engine. So um, in this lab, Vault is scaled to a single stateful set replica. So you will see it's called Vault-0. And as stateful sets provide a stable identity, the corresponding pod will always be named Vault-0. That's a property of a stateful set, stable network identity. In a production environment, of course, you would scale the, vo the, the Vault stateful sets to multiple replicas. Uh, so you have a Vault cluster. So you know, just check out the HashiCorp documentation on how to do that if you want. They have a, uh, a lot of also tutorials, labs, learn.hashicorp.com is great for that. So when installing Vault, the Helm chart, so it's installed with Helm, it's probably the safest and simplest way to, to install it. Make sure a PVC is created. And this ensures that the data persists in case the pod is resorted. So first task is just check the stateful set configuration. Here is just some parsing of the current um, lab, of the current configuration of Vault. So a couple of things that are highlighted there. Um, here, um, we have highlighted a couple of important details. So the um, it's a stateful set, therefore it needs um, headless service. I'm not going to explain too much what is a headless service, but basically it's a service without a cluster IP so that you can directly access the a particular part, for example, part of the stateful set. So Kubernetes provides a built-in DNS service that resolves the headless service name to the list of void parts IP. In our case, we only have one, right? So another important thing is the port on which um, Vault listens. So it's uh, 8200, 8201-8201-8202. So we are mostly interested in port in port 8200. My God, I've got you know it's it's like when it's not your native language, numbers is always difficult. <laughs> it's crazy. Anyway, 8200, which listens for HTTP requests, and this is the port used by Vault client. Um, and the pod has multiple mount points. You will see um, under the PVC, there is the vault uh, config, which is a config map. And there is slash home slash vault, which is attached to a, you know, just a uh, temporary directory. So let's also check the pod vote zero is running and that the PVC is bound. This is quite important. If it's not bound, it won't work. Okay, here you go. It's running, it should be running for you as well. The PVC here, you can see that it is bound and we have the PVC ID there. So at the moment, everything is working. So you can notice there, um, local pass is used. It's a CSI specific um, storage class, I would say, that consume unencrypted local volumes from the underlying node, right? So here again, if you're in production, this may, not be what you want to, to use. You, know, you may be using another CSI uh, that provides more capabilities. Okay, so now that we have verified this, as we are preparing to deploy Trusso, we need to create the, effectively the transit key involved. So this key will later be used to encrypt and decrypt secrets on demand. Uh, but before creating the transit key, we need to enable the secrets engine by using the following uh, command. So what it does is just running vault secrets enable transit inside the vault pod. You can see here vault-0, this is the name of the pod. 
So if I do as I do that, I should be uh, having this. So success enabled transit secret engine. Okay, so this one is fine. Now, second step, or before reaching this, let me check if there are any questions. Okay, no, nothing so far, so good. Okay, so now let's execute the next command that will allow us to create the transit key. So be careful on the, um, about that one. I think there's a warning here. Make sure to use vote key MS demo as the name, the key name, right? So this is the, the name of the key is the last part, <clears throat> excuse me, in the pass. So vault dash KMS dash, uh, dash demo, because this is the, the key we are going to refer within um, Trousseau, right? So when you have done that, success, data written, everyone is happy. And that should be fine. So next step, this engine provides on-demand encryption services. That is, it provides encryption APIs for client without storing data. So now we're going to try that we have created the key. We're going to try to encrypt a key, um, a message with that key. So there's the command for this, which I'm going to explain quickly. So in Vault, you have to specify the path. So you can see here transit slash encrypt means that I want to encrypt. This is the action, the, the API path, right? So I want to encrypt using vote dash KMS dash demo and plain text, uh, but again, this has to be base64 encoded. So I'm just encoding here um, the content of my message, which is, I know what you did last summer, be careful. So um, the reason for this requirement is that VOD does not require that the plain text is text. It could be a binary file such as a PDF or image, not only text, right? And of course, the easiest and safest transport mechanism to transport data, if it's not text over the wire, um, is by encoding your data with base 64, right? So that you don't have any weird character all over the place. Here it's guaranteed you have Unicode, right? So here we go. Now, as a result, here, um, you have the ciphertext that is returned. This is the data that has been encrypted. So again, this data is not stored in Vault. Actually, it's not stored anywhere at this stage, right? So now we want to see that um, we want to decrypt that message now again, right? So for that, let's decrypt the message, which is the opposite operation. Again, I'm going to quickly explain what it does. So I'm running, again, a command from uh, Kubernetes directly into the pod, vote the vote pod. So I'm going to write this time, not at the encrypt uh, location, but at the decrypt path location, because this is the action I want to do, Spe still specifying the encryption key I want to use. And this time, I have to use the particular ciphertext. Of course, the ciphertext is not the same as in the guide. So you have to replace that one, right? So for this, I'm just gonna replace this or control W, that works too. Cipher text equal 
And then you have to take all of that, paste. Here you go, plain text. And now copy this and base 64 dash dash decode here. Here you go. So without doing anything, I'm not running an, an, an encryption myself. I'm just using Vault as a service to encrypt and decrypt my message. So typically, this is what Kubernetes will use, right? The difference is that Trousseau now is going to perform those tasks on behalf of the Kubernetes API server when the API server wants to encrypt secrets and store them into etcd. Okay, so uh, we are done for that particular task. Once you're done with this, you can just click on check to continue and you will have a script that will check if the task has been done before moving to the next challenge. In the meantime, just checking if there's no, no question, no questions. So hopefully if all the 23 people watching are doing the lab, that would be awesome. But no, that doesn't count because I know there are marketing people. They won't do the lab, I'm sure. Okay, let's go for the next one. Um, so now that you have prepared Vault for encryption as a service, let's deal with the Kubernetes API server to enable encryption and configure Trousseau as the KMS plugin. Get ready now. Okay. So this is where it gets a little bit more complicated, but I've done almost all the work for you. You will just have to edit files, save, and that's it. But again, I will make sure you don't make any mistakes. So I'm gonna highlight the sensitive parts. So in this challenge, you're going to configure Kubernetes to enable etcd encryption, deploy Trousseau in the cluster, and use it to encrypt secrets with the vault transit key. So the workflow for this um, challenge is that one. You're gonna create Trousseau configuration file. Then we're gonna deploy Trousseau as a static pod on every node part of the control plane. For people who don't know what a static pod is, it just means that instead of having the regular uh, you know, pod or replica set controller that's pin up the pod, it's a, the manifest is defined within a particular directory on the control plane nodes. And as soon as you place the manifest there, um, the kube, I mean, the kubelet will make sure that the pod is run forever, right? So if you kill it, it will restart it, etc. So it's a pod that is directly managed by um, kubelet without having the regular controller. It's just this is why it's static. It's because the the manifest is directly um, uh, placed into a special directory that kubelet moni monitors to run static pod. It's called a static pod, right? So, um, but actually, Trousseau also use, can use daemon set. So there's two ways of doing things. Static pod, which is like the old way, but in the meantime, we also change it if you want. You can use daemon set. And why you would use daemon set as opposed to static pod? Well, a couple of reasons, but probably the main one is with a static pod, you need access to the master nodes, to the control plane nodes, which uh, you don't if you use GKE or AKS or any managed sort of server. This is where you need to use the daemon set. Okay, so then um, create Kubernetes encryption configuration file. This is to enable con um, encryption on the Kubernetes API itself. Enable uh, the Kubernetes encryption on the API server. 
restart the API server, this one is automatic. So the API server expects, um, I mean, to enable encryption, expects a particular configuration file, a particular object that is called an encryption configuration. It's a first-class citizen in Kubernetes. It's a resource. Um, and then at the end, you can optionally, we're going to see that because the challenge, or not the challenge, but uh, the problem with uh, enabling encryption you know, as you run your existing cluster is that only new secrets will be encrypted. All the all the secrets that are already existing will still be will still be presented as um, unencrypted in in uh, in its CD. So if you want to replace at the same time all the secrets, there is a secret magic command that I'm going to show you that is actually in the lab um, that you can use to do that. So let's start with this one. So Trusso is deployed as a static pod, as I was explaining. You have to store the Trusso pod manifest in a local directory. This directory, by I mean, typically by default, it's um, Etsy Kubernetes manifests. This is the source that is checked to deploy the static pods when Kubernetes starts. So let's just check that it's the case there. I'm not going to lie. I'm sure it's going to be the case. <laughs> So you can see in the kubelet, so this is where you specify it. Right? It's also to tell you where is that setting. If you need to change it at some point, it's under varlib kubelet config.yaml. So here we can see we have this line, which specifies where the manifests are. Um, so let's now create the pod manifest. For this, we're going to navigate to the editor tab on top of the screen, which is here on the top, and open the file name vote.kms.provider.yaml under root on that trousseau. All right, so you open this file, which is vote KMS provider. Okay, so here you go. I'm just gonna do this a little bit. So um, you can just have a quick look at this file. It's a normal pod you know, definition, except it's just a static pod, but that's it. Uh, not too much dif uh, difference. So line 12, Trousseau and the Kubernetes node share the same network namespace, right? Trousseau expects line 22, this particular configuration file at this particular place um, in our case. 23, remember I talked about the uh, sockets that is used for all this GRPC communication uh, back and forth. This is the socket um, that is used pass is there. Don't worry about the opt vote KMS. It's been already created. You don't have to create the directory. 3031, it runs as root on the read-only file system. Then 37, we have a health probe running on the container, meaning that if you have a problem with the backend KMS provider, uh, Trusso will always make sure that we can, you know, that the health probe can talk to the, I mean, the health probe triggers a test that makes sure you can talk to the uh, backend KMS provider. If you cannot, as usual in Kubernetes, help probe after I think that's three time, three failure, it will shut down, uh, shut down the, the pod. And the pod will restart and try again, again, and until you get a loop of death, the crash loop back. But hopefully you should not have this problem today. So it's three failure with a period of a check every 10 seconds. Okay, what else? Uh, yeah, Trusso mounts the directory opt vote KMS as a local volume within the pod 
on line 48 and 51. So this is why this directory is very important because it's mounted directly into, into the container. So the only thing we have to modify in this file, uh, as we are not using Vault Enterprise, we just have to remove this file here, uh, this part here, which is highlighted. So is it here we go the end part, right? Just remove this part, careful. You can save in two ways, uh, Control S, even if you're on Mac, don't use command, it's Control. Control S works to save, or you can just click on the little floppy, floppy drive. So that's fine. Then the next step is to configure Trusso itself. Uh, in the editor tab, open the file named config.yaml, all right? This is where you need to replace the address with three S, <laughs> sorry about that, and replace the token. So, and so IP address we need and the token. To get the IP address, you have the two commands that are displayed there. So the first one there, go back to the uh, console, paste this, you have the IP address, and as to the client token, you can get it using the following command. Again, copy, just click, it will copy uh, directly. Paste this, and this is the token. So go back to my editor, um, this is the IP address. Remove HTTPS, remember, I didn't implement TLS for this lab, which is bad. Don't do this in production. It's bad, very bad. <laughs> okay, and the token is that one. Okay, that should be fine. I can save, just double checking. Everything is okay. Double check, triple check. It's fine. So with this information in head, in hand, sorry, edit config.yaml, which I just, I just did. Every student has a different token. So you have to run the command, the command I, I've uh, written there uh, on the guide. And again, remember to use HTTP and not HTTPS because otherwise that won't work. So now what we have to do is copy the config file to the place it is expected. So remember, it's in opt, uh, sorry, it's in um, Etsy Kubernetes manifest. This is the vote KMS provider static pod configuration. Uh, I should not do this one first, sorry. I should do, follow the guide, don't do like me. I was like one step too fast. Copy first the config because if you copy the um, the pod manifest first, it will complain about the configuration not being reachable. You don't want to do that. So be careful. Copy first the configuration file under opt vote KMS. There you go. Let's go to the directory just to double check is there. Okay, we have display it just to be sure. We have the IP address. We have the token there. It's fine. Now, second step. Let's copy the static pod. This is where the challenge is, right? If you did something wrong, this is not gonna work. Right, I copy things there. And now I'm just watching the pod being provisioned. So here you can see we have now 
for seven seconds, we have vote KMS provider control plane pod that has been created. If everything was, is fine, under 30 seconds, you should not have any error message. Uh, if you have an issue with the backend vote communication, then you will see number of restarts is going to start growing, increasing because you have an error. At the same time, what you can do, you can also, if you want, um, display the logs, Kubernetes logs, um, then this F, uh, sorry, I have to specify the namespace. The namespace is uh, kubesystem, right? kubesystem. Okay, so you can see here, I don't have any special error message. It's just checking every 10 seconds is running, completed health check. So far, so good. Just be careful the order where you copy the file, copy the config file first, and remove the S from HTTPS, put the IP address, the token, those are the key step for that one, right? Okay, so we have now Trusso running. Trusso can talk to Vault. Now we need to enable encryption inside, I mean, in the API server. So again, this is the tricky, tricky part, like editing live the kube API server configuration file, always a bit tricky. So the kube API server is also a static pod. So therefore, you also edit in the same place in Etsy uh, Kubernetes manifest, right? So we have to first, before changing the configuration file, remember, we need to provide an encryption configuration object. It's there for you as a reference. If you go under um, editor, you, you have it as well, right? So you have some the files there, um, but you just copy it, right? You don't have to modify anything there. Just copy the file where it's expected under vote-kms, remember, here. So now you should have those three files under, let me just, this. Oh my God. Here. So we have those three files config.yaml, encryption underscore config.yaml, vote KMS, socket. You need to have those three, right? Be sure to have this. Now, uh, what it's it's setting up here in the encryption configuration is basically setting up the, the socket location, right? So now under the nested resources section, you specify the resources that will be encrypted. In this case, we are only encrypting secrets, but you can encrypt any Kubernetes resource. You can see it's actually a list, but today we only encrypt secrets. You can test with other objects if you want to. So what is particular to that file is the order of providers is important because the first provider in that list will be used to encrypt resources you have defined just above. But you still need to keep the last one, which is by default needs to be there. It's called identity. Uh, it's just used for, you know, to read unencrypted resources. So the problem is if you don't include identity there, you won't be able to read an encrypted secret, right? Which means that remember at the beginning I said 
it only encrypts new secrets. The existing secrets before you know setting up encryption on the Kubernetes API server, those secrets won't the, the old secrets existing ones won't be encrypted. So therefore, if you uh, remove identity from from this file, you won't you won't be able to read those secrets anymore. I mean, the API server won't be able to read those secrets anymore. That's a bit of an issue, right? So keep it there, but not first, because again, if you make identity first in the provider, this is what is going to be used to encrypt, which means that there won't be any encryption. Right? Okay, I hope this is clear. Should be. Um, so now, um, so this provider reads encrypted and encrypted resources. If it's not at present, you won't be able to read secrets that have not been encrypted. Then open the file. Etsy Kubernetes manifest Kube API server under the static pod editor. Right? So we have to go there, the static pod editor, which is just an editor into this, the special directory, Etsy Kubernetes manifest. Just use that one, Kube API server. So again, be super careful. This is super sensitive. Right? But again, just read through the instruction. So first, add the following lines under, uh, sorry, first. The first <laughs> is add the following line as a new command line parameter. So it's the last one, right? Command kubeapi server here. You can see command kubeapi server there. Just copy the encryption here. Is it copy? Yeah. Just this line. Okay. This is fine. Then the Kube API server pod will need to access opt vote KMS. To make this possible, we also need to mount the directory opt vote KMS as a local volume, which means you need to add the following lines under volume mounts and volume sections, respectively. So again, let's find where that volume mounts is. It is a bit down there for the line. Volume mounts, volume mounts. Let's use this mount path here. Copy paste. Here, be careful. Indent, indentation there. Just one touch tab. Okay. Be careful. If you don't do it, that won't work. And second one is volumes. Same thing. We have to have the host, host path section. Volumes, which is there, paste. Again, be careful, you have to indent one more here, one, right? So that it matches the others. Just check that it matches the other members of that list. And then click on the floppy or control S and save it. As soon as you save, the Kube API server is restarted. So don't save it. I should have said that in the beginning, maybe. Don't save it. As you type, wait to type the last portion or to insert the last portion before saving it. If you don't do that, it will fail. You will have to delete the file from Etsy Kubernetes manifest and recreate, I mean, when delete, move it to another directory, change it and move it back, right? Okay, so let's save it and cross finger, okay. So now, if the API server has been restarted, with a proper configuration, you should see a new flag, which is enabling encryption. 
And here you go, right? So now you can see with uh, PS that we have the new flag that has been enabled. So effectively, it means that everything is working. It means that the Kube API server is aware of the socket and can talk to it and therefore can encrypt secrets with it. So now it's up to you. Optionally, you can encrypt all secrets and just check later on if it's really encrypted, or you can keep them unencrypted so that you can see later on. I will provide, later in the lab, I provide a command to check inside etcd whether uh, the secret is encrypted or not. So just to see the difference, you can keep the secrets unencrypted there or not. I won't. And just to show you how to um, encrypt all existing secrets, just use this line. So you get basically get secrets from all namespaces as JSON, as an output, and just replace them with themselves, right? It's just like I'm reading everything and I'm re uh, I'm deleting everything and recreating everything, every secret at once, just using a single, single command line. Replace will delete the resource and recreate uh, based on the inputs. And here the input is reading from the standard input, which is your screen, uh, actually from the, you know, the, the, the first command, redirecting into the standard um, input of kubectl. Okay, let's do that. We should see a lot of things happening now. Okay, so now I've basically replaced every single secret I have in my cluster with an en encrypted version of it. Okay, so if you reach this step, congratulations. Uh, you have successfully enabled Kubernetes encryption with Trousseau and Vault. In the next challenge, you will explore database volume encryption with secrets that are really secrets. Yeah, click check to proceed to the next challenge. Again, it's gonna take um, yeah, a couple of, uh, it should be fine, I guess. Correct, the script is fast, but maybe to provision the next one will take a little bit of time, maybe one, two minutes. So in the meantime, is there any question? I get some failed get version from Linux. Okay, so I've got this question there. I'm getting some failed get version from remote KMS provider. Yeah, you have probably missed a step. Um, uh, failed get version from KMS provider. So where do you get this? Can you post it maybe uh, on, on Slack or YouTube? And yeah, okay, Chris is looking at this. Yeah, probably remember, yeah, HTTP, it has to be HTTP. HTTPS won't work. Trousseau works perfect. Yeah, let me please play this. Good vibes. Your Trousseau just works perfect. Yeah, should be. Just be careful. Go as slow as you need. The lab is there for one and a half hour and it will be available after. Just go back on the same link and the lab will be there forever. Okay, so we have here uh, something else. We have opt vote KMS, no shots fire. I'm getting on Kube API server. Yeah, so you probably, you didn't copy the file there if it's not. Okay. 
let's move to the next step. So now, challenge is ready, final one. So in that particular challenge, after all, the, after all this hard work, we'll see a practical application. So uh, we will need to deploy a database, MongoDB database, encrypt the data volume with a key, and store this key encrypted in NCD using Trousseau and Vault. So I'm just going to repeat this to make it as clear as I can. We're going to deploy a database, MongoDB database, cluster of three nodes. All those nodes, they work with persistent volume claim. When I say nodes, I'm, I mean MongoDB nodes. All those containers, right, it's easier. All those containers will have a persistent volume claim. This persistent volume claim will claim persistent volume, and those persistent volumes are actual you know, um, disk space on your disks, right? So what we want in, is to encrypt these volumes. We want to encrypt these volumes outside of the container so that someone who has like raw access to um, the storage, to the volumes outside of the pod cannot read what's inside directly by mounting it, right? So to encrypt this volume, we need a key. This key will be stored in a secret. And guess what? That particular secret, typically, you know, we want to encrypt it because if we encrypt the volume and leave the encryption key for everyone to see, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? We'd agree, I guess. Therefore, we need to encrypt that secret. And because we have enabled already um, secret encryption, as we create the new secret, this secret will be directly encrypted using uh, Vault and Trousseau, but we just want to verify this. Don't believe what people say and don't believe what I say. Check it by yourself. Or maybe still, still believe what I say. You know. But still check. Let's put it this way. All right, so the, uh, the workflow for, the, for this challenge, we're going to deploy the MongoDB with the community operator. We'll create a three-node MongoDB cluster as a community stateful set with three replica because this is the okay. It's also an excuse to use stateful application and data. Right? This is what we do here in this community. So create a new storage class that will enable volume encryption for MongoDB volumes. So it just happens to be on that where just by using a new storage class that has encryption enabled on that, I mean, the storage class will guarantee that the volume would be encrypted. So it's super Kube native. You don't have to do anything. Just enable encryption in the storage class as easy as that, right? So we want to keep it simple for, uh, for this lab and in general in production as well, as simple as possible, as Kube native as possible. So we're going to um, encrypt the data volume of the MongoDB nodes with private keys stored as secrets, as I said. And then we will verify that the data and the keys are both encrypted. Uh, quick note, at the moment, you can examine, at any moment, sorry, you can examine the content of the YAML file used in this challenge by navigate, navigating to the editor, editor tab. So uh, there's a brand new, um, you know, brand new files directory that is there as a, you know, uh, when setting up the, the, the last challenge. And you can check you know, everything. Don't modify anything because actually there's no need. I don't think we'll go through it, but I don't believe you have to modify anything. Uh, in the in file right now. But uh, still, uh, when I will use some script, I will go through it to explain to you what it does. So let's get started. Hopefully, you can follow along again. 
So the local storage of your Kubernetes nodes is currently managed by ONDAT, uh, meaning that the uh, free space is claimed by ONDAT, if you like, meaning that if you use the storage class, we, uh, ONDAT will provision volumes directly on your local disks, right? So ONDAT provides services such as data services, such as encryption, replication, performance optimization, and you can enable encryption by adding a new parameter to the storage class definition. So let's create a new storage class with encryption enabled. So you can see here, just copy this and paste. This is a, just a here doc command. So um, the only thing you need to, I, we need to highlight a couple of things. File system type, XFS, this is what is recommended by Mongo uh, rather than X4. So just change it here compared to like a traditional, more traditional, <coughs> excuse me, storage class. And the name here of the storage class on that encrypted. And the only thing is encryption true. This is what enable volume encryption. That's it, right? As easy as that. kubectl get storage class. So if you want to use some, you know, uh, K instead of kubectl KG, I have some alias. I mean, you have some alias that are already configured for this lab, if you're more familiar with this way of doing things. So you can see I've got a new. Um, storage class that is called on that uh, encrypted. Okay, first step done. Now uh, let's deploy the Mongo cluster. So go to slash root slash on that. I mean, you can copy paste it and apply the CRD. So first off, what we're going to do is I'm not going to explain, it, uh, explain in details how operators work, but basically we're going to introduce a new Kubernetes extension, a new object schema that represents a MongoDB database. So this is all we do there. We just create this new schema so that Kubernetes can understand the new, conf the new database configuration object that we're going to send to the API server. So a couple of things we have to do with that particular operator. You can check the documentation uh, community operator um, on GitHub. Uh, recently, you can uh, also check on Medium. I, I've written a, a blog on how to do it. Uh, or I mean, it's nothing different from there. It's just like a bit more explanation. So here, we want to deploy some RBAC resources that are required cluster-wide, so not namespaced. Uh, so yeah, don't miss any line here. Be careful. Again, every line is mandatory. Then uh, we're going to create a new namespace to host the MongoDB operator. So the operator will be used um, to, uh, to act as a translation right, between uh, the, the, the YAML file and Kubernetes. So when um, a new CRD, uh, a new custom resource, sorry, a new CR, a new custom resource will be sent to the API server, then the Mongo, B AB, uh, Mongo operator will recognize that and typically will provision the database as instructed by Kubernetes, right? So we create the namespace. So now we have to deploy the namespace RBAC resources here and here, so be careful again, we need those um, back deployed both in the Mongo operator and in the target 
um, namespace where the application, the stateful application will be deployed. So this is where MongoDB uh, will be deployed. In our case, this is the default namespace. So next step, deploy the operator itself right? and just check that it's been deployed. Just watch this. You want to have the operator running. The moment you have the operator running, you're fine. It means that the next step is to create uh, a data database configuration as soon as um, Kubernetes API will detect this. Um, it will store this and the controller will see that there is a new resource in the Kubernetes API and will say, okay, I'm the operator. I'm responsible for this custom resource. Um, and as an action, I'm going to deploy a new database cluster, right? So this is what is left. Cross finger. Um, while yeah, it's doing this, I'm going to go in, into the editor to show you MongoDB config, what we are doing here, right? So in the database configuration, this is always a challenge with operator to understand what data you need to place to put to inject into the YAML manifest. Every, every operator has different data because of course, by default, CRD means custom resource definition. So by design is custom, um, which means that every operator will have its own way of doing things, uh, of changing volumes, of enabling you know, new user, creating new user, et cetera, et cetera. In the case of MongoDB, what we want to do is to use a PVC that is tied to the storage class where we have and um, enable encryption, right? So here we need to change the storage class name because by default, the operator will use default of the storage class. We, we want to change this, right? Also, you may want to, to change the size, um, the name of the volume, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what else we have here? I've created an admin user with a password. The password uh, is hosted in a secret. But guess what? That secret now is encrypted, remember? Because we have enable encryption. Here, it's not encrypted as a file, right? Remember, it's base64. The password is Mongo. Um, this is just the base64 um, encoding of the, the string Mongo, right? That's basically it. So create a new user, uh, which has like specific permissions. And that's basically it. You know, it's uh, it's not that difficult, but to find this kind of information, you have to spend time in the operator documentation. Usually, you will find, you know, like uh, use cases and examples, but not like a single example will will perfectly match what you want to do. So you have to try out things um, and go little by little. You know, what is working, what's not working. At least here, I know this this part is working because I've tested it for you guys. So now let's check that we have our pod running. Okay, we have our MongoDB almost running. So while it's taking more time, guys, it's taking more time because it's not a deployment. This is a stateful set. Stateful application are using stateful sets. Again, stateful set mean that every pod is considered as a pet. Before it was called stateful set, it was called pet set. 
Um, but yeah, probably stateful set is better anyway. So every container, every pod has a unique name, uh, has a stable network identity, not the IP address. It, if I delete MongoDB zero, for example, what's gonna happen? A new MongoDB zero container will be created. The PVC will still be the same. Uh, the IP address will change, but the, F the FQDN, um, the headless service, all that is, is still the same, right? And the name of the, the, the container. So the, the container doesn't lose its identity uh, or the pod, should I say, doesn't lose its identity when you delete the, the pod. It's getting recreated with the same number. If that was a deployment, then a new pod would be recreated with a different name and a random string at the end, essentially, right? So that's the main difference. Okay, so I've got my three nodes running. I'm uh, just checking if there is no questions so far. No. Everything seems to be okay. So now, where am I in the uh, guide? So you will notice that pods part of a stateful set are created sequentially. This is by design, as every pod is unique and a new one cannot be deployed until the previous one is ready. So wait until all pods are running. Should take about three minutes. And yeah, Control C to cancel the watch command. So now let's create a new database. So now that you have a running MongoDB cluster, Let's create a database in a collection. The collection in MongoDB NoSQL architecture is exactly what a table is to a relational database. So you're going to create a JSON document in a database that we called Shakespeare. And the collection or the table, if that was a relational um, database, is called quotes. And we want to insert a new document, so typically unstructured or semi-structure document. Uh, for DB specialist. So basically JSON data here, uh, simple entry. Publication is uh, Romeo and Juliet. I'm a romantic, you know, uh, I can't help it. And text is what's in a name, that which we call a rose by any other world will, would smell as sweet. Uh, it's so nice. Anyway, so when deploying the stateful set, the operator creates a MongoDB replica set where one pod holds the primary data set and the other ones hold replicas. So let's first verify this by running this command. So the only thing I'm going uh, to do in that command, I'm using mongosh, which is present on um, every Mongo node. And then uh, you want to, it can be any node at this stage, it can be MongoDB 0, 1, 2, 3, right? Doesn't really matter. And uh, so MongoSH, I'm connecting to the database, username, admin, password, Mongo. And this is the command I'm sending. Print JSON replica set status. If I do that, I should see the current status of the cluster. So you, sh you should see all the members with one primary and two secondary, right? Um, so it can happen that it's not MongoDB zero that will be used as primary. Um, let's say on 10 times, it happened to me like seven times where I had primary as zero, but sometime it's another one. Okay, so identify your master. In my case, it's easy. It's MongoDB zero. MongoDB zero is primary. Okay, so 
Now we're just going to run this command to create the database. And I'm just going to go through that file to, to show you what it does. Mongo SH here. So I'm just create, uh, connecting to the database. Use Shakespeare means that you create a new database called Shakespeare. DB create collection quotes. I mean, self-explanatory. It's creating a quotes collection. And then insert one is the method to insert um, an entry in that particular collection, which is exactly the JSON payload I showed you before with the publication and the text, right? This is just what I'm doing here. And if it works fine, then you should see uh, OK there, acknowledge true, and you should return an object ID, right? You should have the ob object ID return. And to check that it's there, oops, I clicked on something. Okay. <laughs> to check that it's there, you can use this script. So again, I'm, I'm going to be running that particular script. So what is in that one? Check Mongo. .sh, uh, which is uh, there. So I'm just uh, trying to listing the, the content of the collection that is called quotes and just display it a bit more, you know, prettier. So I should see the result here. I should see the publication and the text, right? So if it works, perfectly fine. So now the only thing that is left is to uh, check that encryption is enabled and that the text we are looking at is not searchable within the volume. So for this, we're going to do a couple of things. So first, I'm going to enable the storage OS CLI or the ONDAT CLI, which allows us to see on um, what host the volume is effectively attached. And um, it should give you like the list here of all volumes. And we will need to map this out to the existing PVC. Right? So when you do this, you see that uh, in pick one MongoDB uh, data volume that you want. Let's go through the, uh, uh, the text first. Like first, let's find the on that volume associated with the MongoDB pods by executing the following commands get the list of PVCs to map them out to the on that volume displayed above. So in this example above here, you can see that MongoDB data volume uh, PVC ID is ending with 9B2, right? So let's check in my case now in the lab, um, you can pick whatever you want, like the, the node that you want, probably just pick the first MongoDB zero. You can see that the PVC ID is ending by AE4. Right, AE4. So now what you want to do is find the same name for the list of volumes of on that volumes there that's finished by the same ID, AE4. And you want to see on which node it is currently attached. So you have to use the attach on uh, column to see where the volume is currently attached. It's where, I mean, Usually it's the same, but on that provides the ability to access volume remotely, even though the pod still thinks it's local. This is why you have a distinction between, between the location and where the volume is attached, right? But long story short, you need to check the worker on their attach on column. Uh, usually it's the same, but for example, it can vary, right? Like this one is, um, is not the same. 
So here again, we check the ID, AE4, we check the ID, AE4, it's attached on worker two, right? So here, uh, you can choose any other MongoDB pod if you fancy. The data is replicated to the other two nodes. Just make sure you target the right Kubernetes worker node, right? All the commands I've done before, like the, um, you know, the database commands, this is supposed to be done on the master, right? This is why uh, I told you uh, identify um, which one is the primary, not master, primary. So, um, so but before showing you that you cannot look for the string within the volume, let's check that within the pod, meaning that it's unencrypted, we can look for that particular string, right? So I want to check that within the pod, mongodb-0, there is match for rows. You can see here, we have a match for that strings in the binary file, right? That means it's on disk, I mean, from within the pod, it's not encrypted, right? And luckily, otherwise we would have uh, problems. So you can notice that there's a match with multiple files. Now let, let's verify that the data is encrypted uh, when accessing the raw volume. This is simulating an attacker who leverage privilege escalation to get access to the storage device. The string rows should not be visible when the attacker tries to access the encrypted data. So let's verify this. Connect to the node where the on that volume is attached to. In our case, this is node three in the, uh, in the initial uh, lab, but in the current lab that I'm running now, remember it's worker two, right? So here you copy paste and on worker two, the data is attached there. I should not be able to see this. So I should return nothing. Nothing is returned. This means it's encrypted. But now you can say, yeah, maybe it's not there by default anyway, right? Maybe it's still not encrypted. Why do I know? Again, proof. So we're going to check with a pod that mounts a volume that is not encrypted with the same principle. We're going to put a string, still Shakespeare, into the volume and check that the volume uh, you, you can look for the string within the volume doing the same operation and that is not encrypted. So for that, uh, there is a pod that is ready. It's called Amlet Unencrypted. You're just going to create it. Uh, if you want to see the definition, again, it is there. The only thing I'm, I'm uh, writing a command. So my words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. Uh, this is so beautiful. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, this is going to be written in that volume. And we see that uh, the storage class we use uh, is, it? is called storage OS, right? This is the initial storage class, which is not encrypted, right? So I storage class, storage class, o yaml, o yaml. And we want storage OS, you can see uh, we don't have encryption enabled there, right? It, which means it's false by default. So uh, wait a little bit for the pod to be uh, created. We should also see a new PVC. You can see the new PVC is there. It is bound. Uh, we should also see 
a new pod, the Hamlet pod, an, an unencrypted one is there. So we have to do the same work again, right? So um, you have the PVC ID that is there. So remember that one, I'm just gonna copy the last part of it. And we have to identify from um, the storage OS command where it's attached to, right? So this is this line, I'm just copying the last part. Okay, so it's attached on worker two as well, right? So now if I do the same command here, what I should see is I've got a match from the device directly. So here what I'm doing is from the host itself, from the, the, the worker host, not from the container, I'm trying to access um, the raw data, right? Here you go. So here I have a match, right? Which means that this one is effectively unencrypted. And hopefully we've got that the proof that the first one is encrypted and that one is unencrypted. And now the last step we have is to check that the keys are used to encrypt the volumes are also encrypted. So for that, we're gonna get, it's a secret, right? So we're gonna display the secrets that are there, the volume key secrets. But we're gonna take like the first one as an example. And um, here, I'm just gonna do that. I'm gonna display content of this. So again, get secrets. This part is totally unencrypted, right? It's encrypted in etcd, not when you run kubectl as an authorized and user that has the permission to do so, right? Okay, so as expected, the secret object is readable using kubectl and correctly decrypted uh, by kubeapi server. Now let's verify it is encrypted within etcd. For this, we need to use etcdctl directly, which is the command line interface for etcd. So execute the following instruction, replacing the secret name following slash registry secrets default, right? So just the last part of this command, you will have to replace it. I will do it with you. So this is the last portion of the path, right? Has to match one of, the, of the, those secrets, right? So why we have that many, so if you count, there is one, two, three, four, five, six different secrets is because we have six volume that are um, encrypted. We have data and log for every node. We have three nodes, three times two make six. I know it because my daughter is learning timetables. <laughs> okay, so if I do that, xdump dash C, um, you should see at the very beginning, if it works, you will find V1 vault provider and then uh, just gibberish, gibberish everywhere. So it means it's encrypted, right? So if you want to check the same thing with a secret that is not encrypted, you would have to replace the last portion again with the name of a secret that is not encrypted, but I have encrypted all my secrets, so I'll leave it up to you to change this. 
Okay, so now I think we are done. We have, what we have done so far, uh, we have encrypted, decrypted secret with Vault. We have configured Kubernetes API to enable encryption. We have configured Trusso. Uh, we have created a database cluster. We have encrypted the volumes. And we have made sure that the secrets used to encrypt the volumes are also encrypted. So you can check the lab. And if everything is fine, you should go to the final stage that you should take a screenshot of that one if you want, just to, to, to prove that you have finished the lab. And also, or you could take a, um, you take a, a screenshot of this screen as well and say how much you enjoyed it. Maybe not this one. No, not, don't use this one. I'm going to be using that one. Not that it's because I wrote it, but oh, actually, yeah, probably because of that. Finished. OK, so um, let's go back. I think now we are good to go to the next stage. Bart, are you still there? Are our panel or panelists there as well? We don't hear you. Oh. Can you hear me yet? And now you can? Yeah. So let me just unshare and remove my screen. And I'm going to add everyone here. Good. What's up, Allison? What's up, Lorraine? Good to have you back. Tell me, yeah. First of all, big, I think we can all agree, big shout out to Nick. It's not easy to, to, to do a lab like that in general, let alone where the I'm sweating a little bit. In the final stretch, you start getting Shakespeare in there. Anyway, you've you've made history. I've never heard. I don't know when the next time we'll be able to hear her talk about encrypting Shakespeare. Yeah, you know, like uh, when was the last time you heard about Shakespeare? And when, <laughs> <laughs> particularly in this context. So anyway, really, really enjoyed that. Um, as a reminder, folks, it, you know, for the for the raffle part, it's quite clear what you got to do. Take that screenshot. Let us know that you're finished. Um, you know that you need a tag and and to make yourself visible, so we can get you your swag. Now moving on to, to the next part, and just also a reminder though too, get in Slack if you're not in Slack already. All the people who are with us right now on the panel are in Slack. Um, to get started, since we already got a quick introduction from, from Nick and Dominique in the beginning, I would like now to turn it over. Uh, Allison, with those headphones, you've got to go first. I'm sorry, Lorraine, um, but it's it's tough competition. So Allison, can you introduce yourself and just let us know a little bit, uh, know about who you are and what you're doing at Casting? Hi. Um, so yeah, I'm Allison. Um, I do uh, developer relations over at Caston, and um, yeah, it's uh, we. Oh, gosh, I'm <laughs> a little bit nervous. Not going to lie here, um, but we do. We specialize in Kubernetes backup and recovery, um, and uh, we've got a bunch of open source projects and. Uh, online learning hub as well, learning.casten.io, our product K10. It's pretty cool. Um, there's a free uh, trial. You can check it out. Um, outside of the work things um, or still inside of the work things, I work closely with the Kubernetes community as co-chair of SIG Contributor Experience. And um, I'm also a CNCF ambassador and really looking forward to KubeCon happening in Valencia in May. So, yeah. It's a bit of I, I think I think we all are all of us that are that are connected in Europe. 
Um, now to turn it over to you, Lorraine, can you just give a little bit of background about who you are? Oh, you're muted. Lorraine, you're muted. And let's see, can we get you unmuted? Oops. Oh, we lost Lorraine. Lorraine will be back. That's okay. <laughs> Lorraine, Lorraine wants that she much of a disconnected. power. She wants that much of a power. Oh, she's back. She, she's getting hey, Yeah. Hey, Lorraine, how you doing? Yeah. Hello, I'll try again. Uh, yeah, I'm Timescale's community manager. Uh, Timescale DB is a time series database that is underpinned by PostgreSQL. So you can use SQL for your time, for your time series queries and um, auto optimizes storage and makes everything wonderful for time, time series data aficionados. And we also have PromScale, which is a observability platform. So that, that's my quick intro. That's a good intro. Lorraine is a very active person in our community, very accessible, as is everybody who's here with us on this panel. Um, so anyway, that being said, we just want to jump right in. You know, We've just had a really, really good technological overview for it from Nick about, about secrets, about encryption, and all things that are very, very relevant to our community on the technical side. However, now we want to kind of balance that out with the with the human side of things. And so, you know, we are, we are, you know, as Allison rightfully mentioned, we're all hopefully going to see each other in May in Valencia, you know, fingers and toes crossed. Um, hotels getting booked. We're going to have a co-located event for the data on Kubernetes community. Hope to see everybody there. Um, and, but with that in mind, Allison, I want to start with you is that, you know, we're, we're coming on two years of the pandemic, and so we've very much shifted to this online format, also hybrid format. What would you say has been, and also you're very involved in the CNCF as an ambassador and well contributor experience. What would you say has been the role of community? How has it shifted throughout this, this period of time we've, we've been going through? And what are some of the lessons that you've learned? So um, the role of community, um, really, it's um, kind of crazy when i think about the pandemic and how like everything started out and shaped out there was like a lot of things that kind of changed over time um for instance you know everyone had way less bandwidth um especially in the open source side when we think about kubernetes and you know and bringing it back into developer relations you know um people are super busy and so you know the kind of, you know, the huge shift in what kind of content or what talks and how we deliver information has changed a lot. And, you know, I see a lot of people bringing their own creative flair into their content and things like, for instance, Spart, your your reps, they're, they're honestly, you're dropping fire bars, I'm not going to lie. Like, <laughs> oh. And, you know, it's the kind of mixing this kind of creativity with this educational piece of like, this is, this is how you do Kubernetes secrets. This is how we do data management. This is how we do DevOps, all these kind of things and adding your own kind of personal touch to, to those kind of things. Um, and I think especially one thing the pandemic has taught me as well is the war for kind of, well, not the war, excuse me, that's kind of bad language. Um, the thanks, trying to kind of grab people's, you know, you know, there's just so much content out there on Kubernetes at the moment. And if there's anything I could say about like, there are so many videos and so many ways to learn and all that is, you know, 
don't be discouraged if you want to make your own kind of content or, you know, you want to give it a shot. You want to teach someone something new um, because the thing is, is, you know, we all learn in different ways. And so hearing stuff from a different voice, a different perspective, you know, it's it's pretty cool, but yeah, I just kind of went on a tangent there. Yeah. No, but I think I think I think we're I think we can all agree with that. I think you touched on a few different points in terms of the opportunities that it's given us, in terms of ways that we can connect, you know, and how we're connecting right now. I'm in I'm in Madrid. You're you're all in the UK. Uh, the, you know, these international connections have certainly helped out a lot, as well as giving people a platform that they didn't necessarily have previously in order to do that, and as well as the kind of creativity that. That these that these sorts of environments uh, tend to invite, and and obviously you know we just we just uh, you know set, had a wonderful presentation from Nick that was being done in an online way, which means engagement changes, all those different kinds of things. Now um, I want to turn it over to to Dominique. You've obviously been in, very involved in communities in in the UK, and and some activities have have you know kind of gone a little bit on standby. But what are the things that you think that have made these relationships last through this period of time? And what are other things that you think that we can that we can expect as the situation progresses? Once again, fingers and toes crossed that that we're that we that we are, that things are improving. Um, so don't want to jinx anything, but can we can we get a little bit of perspective on that? Yeah, of course. So I think just just to to note a little bit of like obviously it's amazing that like the um, the pandemic has forced us to like come up with different and creative ways to do things. The flip side for me personally has been very much like, because everything's happening online right now, how am I going to stand out with my measly community meetups and stuff like that? Like, um, you know, the pandemic has been quite hard for my mental health and I'm not very, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm happy to be like transparent about that because it's something that we need to talk about as a community, I believe, you know, like it don't, um, I've allowed myself to just like put things on standby because one of the things that I care about the most as a person is like the meaningful interactions where I can see people's faces. Like this is good. Like I like I like this this setup. I like this format. But you know, some sometimes I do. I'm, I'm doing workshops with uh, with 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 customers where I work and stuff. It's like 200 people just like on the on the on on the on the screen which is fine i mean just names and stuff like that but it's it, it just i feel like there's still something missing for me personally but you know i think that's one of the reasons why things have been a bit on hold um but also now things are becoming a bit more safer because i don't really want to be the responsible uh, the responsible person for people getting ill or you know whatever um you know it's like a a duty of care for the people that you um, that you manage, really, as a as a community, you know, like if you put people in the same room and all of a sudden, um, you know, if you don't put the right uh, like uh, uh, health checks in place and stuff like that, or at least some sort of you know like encourage mask wearing or social distancing and stuff like that, um, yeah, like people need to feel safe, and if people don't feel safe, they don't share. If people don't share, then you're not really you know, like you're there to learn something from each other and, and people all, everybody has something to bring. And I feel like what I'm mostly looking forward to is being able to actually go in and have a conversation again, you know, because mm. a lot of people won't feel comfortable enough to actually ask questions or engage with a conversation. And I'm very outspoken and very extroverted. <laughs> so like I, I just get involved with everything. But I know for a fact, there's a lot of people that won't get the same 
FaceTime or amount of uh, ability to actually share their thoughts and their things that they've built and stuff like that, because the barrier to reach out to people can be very easy because it's, you know, like everybody online can easily reach out to other people, but then getting over yourself and asking, say, hey, can I come do a talk at your at your session? Like I do, do a session at your meetup or can I ask some questions? It's very difficult to be more vulnerable. I think if you, yeah, I don't know. I think um, I'm also going off on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> No, 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 no. I think, and I think, I think, I think you raised several good points there. You know, one thing is that I think the pandemic has helped us be much more open about, about mental health, you know, and being transparent about that. And I plus one, everything you said about that, that I've definitely suffered a lot and it's made me question and have to have different strategies and apply creativity and, 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 and openness to being open to different ideas regarding that. And also what you said too, is that as folks that are in outreach positions, uh, which is a privileged position as well, I would say, at least in my case, is that you know, not the same strategy isn't going to work for everybody. And, you know, we saw like just in this, you know, just in, in the, in the, in the hands-on lab, get your questions, get your questions. We say it again and again, but some people are still, they're still going to struggle with that a little bit. And we have to be sensitive to that and know, and then you're like, why didn't they ask the questions that I wanted them to ask? Well, there are a million different factors that can play into that. And you don't know what kind of a day somebody might have different things can happen there. Now I want to bring it over to Lorraine and Lorraine, you can give a little bit of context about this because Lorraine actually did academic work about looking at the effects of loneliness. Um, so uh, I do want to draw on you here, Lorraine, about how this this has also played a role in the pandemic. And and once again, that like I said, we're we're talking about technological you know technological challenges. But in order to make people feel comfortable to tackle those challenges, to be engaging in a community, we have to be sensitive to these things. So Lorraine, if you could just give us a brief summary of the work that you did, I believe it was when you were getting, you did a master's degree on this. I did. Um, yeah. yeah. Could you just give us a little bit of background about it and how that might apply to the situation we're currently facing right now? Yeah. No. That, yeah, I can. <laughs> I'm kind of digging back into that, into that work now. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, there's, you know, kind of loneliness and um building community and being alone in the pandemic is like uh, a kind of a big issue and the work that I did was looking at the whole um, idea of kind of elderly loneliness actually and kind of just being isolated with kind of your pet and I kind of did a, a storybook kind of at a collage about um, that kind of journey that people have to combat loneliness um, which I shared with Bart so that's why he knows about it um, but I think that kind of coming back to that also I think that as community people and developer relations people we also have to recognize that when you go to conferences there are people that can be very lonely in that space as well because you know um and, and one of the things that I, I've been with um timescales since July and one of the things that I have really appreciated if we could look for some good in this pandemic and how we've had to work because that's you know me I like to try to find those good bits and those good nuggets is that because I've been here since July I've been able to build relationships with people online in a way that um, if I'd been going to meetings and meetups and conferences all the time because you tend to get this kind of traveling troop of kind of conference goers and things that in itself builds builds a clique and so, and that in itself is exclusionary to those people who are just turning up to like one conference. So what I've appreciated about the pandemic, pandemic 
is that kind of ability to be more widely equitable about who's included because you can join from anywhere in the world. It's not financially kind of driven. You know, you don't have to get permission to come along. You don't have to be able to pay for your hotels. So there's those elements where some of the people that are able now to join in the community and be wholly a part of it because the conferences aren't happening can engage, you know. So I, that's kind of... I mean, I, I, the last conference I went to, I was there as an attendee and I did actually feel quite lonely. And that brought it really home. It was a DevRel conference, ironically. So you would think you would not be alone in that kind of kind of context. But there were these kind of real kind of groups of people, you know, so it's kind of breaking into that is quite important. Dominique, yeah, to, you're... Yeah, Dominique, yeah. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I just, just that thing that I just wanted to like, 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 uh, like touch on that, like the experience of going to... A conference or a meetup by yourself is terrible you know like um as i said before like i can easily talk to people if i want to but as soon as my social battery runs out i'll just sit in the corner somewhere and listen to music you know put like a noise cancelling headphones on and then i'm just in my own brain for a bit but it's it's you know like i've been trying over the last couple of years i've been trying to come up with like clever ideas of like how can we encourage like the more togetherness and yeah i think it's 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 interesting. I went to Docker uh, um, DockerCon in uh, Barcelona, and they did this really interesting thing where um, I forget what it's called, but basically, if you're a first time uh, the DockerCon goer, you can sign up to this 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 um, put an online form. You get like paired with one of the Do uh, with one of the Docker captains or one of the community leaders. Basically, just get paired with like a group of ten people. And you just like have lunch together or just like you're able to to, to talk discuss the the, uh, the the content that you've seen and stuff i thought that was really cool and i think that should be done a bit more you know <laughs> it's just like how that does particularly translate to in-person things and i think in the sense of like being online or at least having at least some sort of hybrid solution for it you know the ability to join and feel like you're part of something is easier um but yeah, like, <laughs> so, yeah. I think those are really good points. And I myself as well, too, identify very much because I think I, I would certainly imagine that the sort of uh, personality that's projected through, oh, the guy who makes rap videos, he'll go up and talk to anybody. Sometimes, yes, but then other times I'm very much like in, in social situations where like, I'm just going to go pretend that I'm on my phone doing something important when in reality it's probably not that important. I just want to like zone out and listen to music or things like that. And because those situations can be very taxing. One thing I do want to mention, and also I want to, I'm trying to give Nick a chance to breathe and Nick continues to answer questions in the chat while we're, while we're talking, doing his due diligence as a, as a wonderful DevRel person, is that um, I want to turn it over really quickly to Allison as well too, is because I'm lucky enough, one of the main reasons why uh, I've been able to, to, to find my sort of niche in this world is because of uh, getting started in the CNCF through the contributor experience um, upstream marketing group of telling stories about different contributors and things of that nature. And, and once again, talking about, you know, what, what um, Lorraine was mentioning of, you know, really building a big tent where, where you insist on being welcoming. And, and I have, I had never really experienced that in, in anywhere else, but it was because of the welcome that I received when joining the CNCF in that capacity and was immediately able to, it was like, if you just want to sit in the meetings, basic, basic requirements, open source, positive attitude, second, being willing to learn. Um, those are the things that I continually insist on. And personally, because I do not have a technical background, I am not a programmer, I'm not a DevOps expert, none of that. 
But people in the, my my experience in the CNCF is like, don't worry about that. There are other things that you can do, and I really insist on that as well too in our community. But Allison, if you could just touch on that briefly about that sort of spirit, and but I would also ask, it does take some work to continue to build that. It's not something that just comes that you know you just leave it and it's there. So if you could just tell us a little bit about your experience and what's necessary to make sure that communities have that, so that people do feel that welcoming experience and that they have a, a role to play. So if there's anything I can say to that point is, um, so my, my experience is personally like getting started with Kubernetes and starting to contribute upstream was, um, I remember this, uh, I went back ages ago, I was in um, Barcelona at Kubernetes Contributor Summit, I was at this new contributor workshop. And I remember, you know, I, I did a little bit of helping out, like I was helping run around the microphones. And um, there was uh, Gwen, uh, Gwen Sajina, uh, she, she was like to me, oh, you should come help next time. And she kind of extended the olive branch out to me. And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll come help next time. And then, you know, I think that's a huge part about being welcoming and inclusive is, you know, getting new folks in to do like to do work to do to participate to be part of this kind of wider wider thing um and on top of that you know providing opportunities because you know there's a lot of work out there when you're contributing to an open source project where you can be where you can see see something that's like should go fix it and you're like, I could go fix that right now. But you could actually like, you know, stop and pause and give an opportunity for someone else to uh, come to the table, rise up and, you know, get that first, you know, experience of contributing to a project. Um, and that's kind of, you know, I will have to say I'm not perfect myself. Uh, I've been through kind of, you know, periods of time where I feel like, oh, I have to do all these things myself and, you know, you end up overloaded then you kind of look around and you're in this wonderful kind of community of people who you can reach out to for help um who you can you know for instance even earlier today um you know i i was supposed to host a meeting uh for contributor experience and um you know i i reached out to um i reached out to one of my fellow contributors chris short and i was like please can you host the meeting? And, you know, it's that kind of teamwork that you can rely on those people. And, you know, and on top of that, I had to say with the community as well, like because of how diverse in nature it is. So we've got folks from, you know, in contributor experiences, folks from all over the world, from, you know, America to India to New Zealand to the UK. Um, and one of the things we do to make sure we include everyone is instead of having a weekly, we have weekly meetings, but uh, we have one of them that's face-to-face -face and bi-weekly at a certain time. And then one of them's an asynchronous Slack meeting. And um, that gives folks who might not be so kind of comfortable with coming on camera or coming on a call an opportunity to kind of participate and be part of a meeting. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of a tangent there, uh, tangentially <laughs> speaking, uh, with the tango, um, good drink. 
this is not sponsored by tango just this is not it it could be sponsored it could be but it's not uh, is this still a thing if they want to sponsor they can but we're reach out to us yeah yeah, we've got all our twists now to turn it over to nick because i think nick's been able to answer all the all the technical questions so nick you know you're directly working with and you know and this is one of the challenges that we really face as a community is that Mm -hmm. When I go out there, you know, I have I have friends that have been working with big data technologies and have cloud experience. And I say, oh, well, what about data on Kubernetes? And they look at me like, oh, you're totally crazy. Like, I'm not going to get into this. This is way too difficult. Mm-hmm. I think in 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 roles of DevRel, Dev Advocacy, a lot of it is is trying, you know, there's, uh, if you want to say enticement or encouragement, you know, when you want to be approaching folks and talking about, you know, writing stateful workloads on Kubernetes, obviously, you we just saw a wonderful presentation, but how do you go about approaching that? so that it doesn't feel overwhelming to break things down into you know smaller steps what's your approach to that yeah so typically when i'm talking to someone and if i want to introduce data on kubernetes usually i'm starting to you know what kind of database are you using i'm trying to to go on the database message queuing side all the applications that are not today necessarily running as the main target into kubernetes right and then the second question is, where do you run them? And usually it's not in Kubernetes. And if people already have Kubernetes, I'm just asking, you know, why? Because, I mean, I know like hundred reasons why not to do it, but usually I'm like, okay, but do you know that since day one, like five years ago, things evolve and now we have a lot of tools to enable you to run data on Kubernetes in a way that is almost effortless with operators and all these things. This is why this, this operator thing is, is really key to make uh, data in Kubernetes, uh, on Kubernetes uh, a success. So usually it's a mix of what data you use, uh, who is managing your data, because the thing is you need to, uh, we want to be inclusive right, as well. So you need to include DBA, right? Even DBA sometimes are, you know, like I always compare them like, Back in, the, back in the day, like a couple of years ago when software-defined networking started to ramp up, I was making fun of, or making fun, not, yeah, not really making fun, but all the you know, old CCIE guys who uh, kind of were in denial, total denial, where no, 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 software-defined networking, no, I like my boxes, I'm going to stick with my boxes, my, my Cisco tattoo, I mean, I don't have Cisco tattoo, but I could, <laughs> and it's kind of the same thing you know it's with data on kubernetes you have to for, forget the idea of running database on a bare metal server it took time it was probably about seven eight years to get database running properly on virtual machine in vmware so imagine in kubernetes because vmware is ui click click everywhere kubernetes is a bit more convoluted more complex a lot of more moving parts so it's going to take some time but and this is why i love um, the, the community, and this is also why I used to contribute a lot in the Cisco DevNet community, because this is where the cool stuff happened. This is where you can talk to people. This is where you can um, educate people and share information and just talk to them. And this format, to be honest, like I, 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 I'm not a big fan of talking in front of my uh, camera. I don't see people. It's just names, and you know, I don't know how many you know conference I did, but so many people come to you at the end of the session just to have to a one-on-one chat because they're just not comfortable with you know where they are in their journey and things like that. <clears throat> you cannot just do that anymore. 
And sometimes I've got people actually now, it's a bit different. They're pinging me either on Twitter or on LinkedIn or like uh, ex-coworkers or friends or people who you know, watch my videos or blogs. They just ping me on LinkedIn and they ask me for, you know, just I use Calendly and then just pick a, uh, a slot there and we can have a chat. But I'm not a big fan of that because it's too... Um, it's it's a lot more complex. You have to use LinkedIn. You have to use Canonly. You have to click, click. It's always in 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 front of the damn computer, right? It's a lot easier. We can you know at the end of the conference, you go for a drink or you go for a coffee, whatever, right? So and this this part has been very difficult for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna lie. It's I, very I have to say Online that conferences are hard work. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, sorry, I to say that. The, the multi-channel thing on a day-to-day -day basis is really kind of, you know, I mean, you're constantly flicking and because you're meeting the community where they want to talk to you, it's kind of that that has become really um, mind-blowing in this last few months. So, you know, that's that's a good point. Years. That's a good point. And that's something that's being addressed well now in the CNCF. There's just a burnout group that's meeting every week mm -hmm. just to talk about. And the thing is, the level of burnout rates among folks that are sort of in our positions that are the ones that are, in, on on stage and also behind the scenes at the same time, um, it's something that it's it's taxing and you have to figure out. And, and what Allison was mentioning either is sometimes you find yourself blindly going at and Dominique mentioned well as, as well. It can be easy to fall into the trap of doing everything at 100 miles an hour. And once you mm. learn that you can do it, that's kind of a bad thing because like then mm. you're like, oh no, but I've done this before. And really, you're and the anxiety. Oh, the anxiety yeah. that increases all that. So anyway, if I can say anything. And unfortunately, we do have to wrap up um, is that I think empathy is a key, a very key element of this. And empathy is 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 once again, it's not something that's static. It's something that needs to be nurtured. It's something that needs to be taken care of. Um, and I think the next step, you know, from from this particular call that we're having right now is is seeing how we're going to take that to the next level in March. And so that's kind of the challenge. Um, so I'm looking forward. I hope to see everybody here in London. Mark your calendars, March 24th. Um, we will be there. I will be. I have my flights. Uh, hotels are really expensive in central London. I'm not gonna lie. So I'm gonna. Maybe I you may... should get one of those like a uh, temporary um, room booking things. I'm not gonna name any names. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do is stay at a, a friend's parents' house. Is probably gonna be my solution. Uh, but anyway, so so but but like like I said, really looking forward to that. But I, at the same time, as it's it's a challenge because you know this is gonna be my first time doing an in-person event, I think, since the pandemic started. Um, so once again, I think a big part of this in terms of how we're constructing it is this empathy element. If some folks, for a lot of them, it's going to be their first event to go to. So there are just different things we have to take into account. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to it as a learning experience. And I've learned a lot today, A, on the technical side from Nick, amazing job. Learning about Vault 2 was super cool. Dominique, thank you so much. Allison, it was great to have you with us. Um, Welcome to the data on Kubernetes community. You're, I guess you're one of our one of our newest members. So very nice to have you with us. Lorraine, pleasure as always. We'll continue the conversation on Slack. Um, we'll be separating this from the uh, from the live stream, the previous one, so that we have it as a separate video for folks that just want to focus on these elements. I think we touched on some really good points here today. So thank you all very much. Nick, congrats again for an amazing lap. My pleasure. Really, really good. Really, yeah. really good. Take care, everybody. Thank Bye. you for having me. You. Bye. 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 Cheers. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, how do I?